from Vinepairs New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vinepair Podcast. Uh, Zach, what have you been drinking, man? You know, the, the two things that stand out at, of the, over the last week, so for my wife's birthday, uh, so she really wanted to make chili, which is one of her favorite things to make. And so she made chili for her birthday. In a crock pot? And we decided... Uh, just in a regular. Uh, oh, I feel like it's know, always going to be a crock pot. I got an. I mean, I don't have one, but I feel like chili goes in a crock pot. You can make it in can. a normal. She's, pot. Got, <laughs> she, like, she's got a methodology that she's very attached to that she's been making for a long time, and so she does that. That's cool. And then uh, I decided that you know instead of having wine, my one of her another thing she really likes is uh, dark beer, and so we had had we have a few kind of older bottles of some um, you know kind of like winter imperial winter ales and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I opened two bottles, one from 2018 and one from 2020 from Fremont Brewing here in Seattle of their uh, B Bomb, which is their like kind of imperial winter ale and we did a little side by side which is kind of cool because i i really haven't drank a lot of aged beer it's just not been a thing that i've done yeah what was that like what i don't know off the top of off the top is to what extent if any there's a difference in the base beer uh that goes in both cases like i don't know if they change the the recipe up in between mm-hmm. but the the main difference is is that the 2018 the three-year-old beer was d- noticeably kind of more wine-like in terms of being more kind of fruit driven and having more kind of like spice notes and the 2020 mm. was much more like malty like chocolatey mm. rich um you know kind of in that regard but you could tell that they were you know obviously related to one another which was really kind of cool and and really enjoyable and then the only other thing that i wanted to to mention really quickly that i had that i really enjoyed recently too uh was i had a really beautiful uh chateauneuf de pop blanc uh which is Mm. a category of wine that i really enjoy like these sort of southern rhone white uh blends that i feel like for whatever reason just like do not get much I don't know. They just don't get thought of a lot as great white wines, but uh, in part because, you know, the red wines overshadow them and in part because they just don't make a lot of the whites in that region, but um, they're really good. So cool. How about you, Joanna? How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, In terms of what I've drank lately, I've had a lot of wonderful wine. Which is, yeah. which is exciting for me. Um, I, I had a really lovely Chardonnay from Brewer Clifton recently cool. and um, also a really amazing cab from Freemark Abbey uh, 2015, which was awesome. And then I I had some really amazing Barolo from one of Adam's favorite producers. Yes. Conio. It happened. <laughs> awesome Barolo. So that was really exciting for me. Like um, the dopest shit ever. Was Adam responsible for this or was Partially? he just uh, <laughs> Partially. directly responsible? You know, I just mentioned it yes. on the podcast a few I know, times. Yes, I know. It's his, uh, his, one of his favorites. So that was awesome. Um, what about you, Adam? So, gosh, well, last night was our third and our fourth four four dinner series with uh, like a bunch of really cool luxury scotches. So, mm. I got to have a thirty year old Talisker, wow. which was pretty awesome. It's pretty old, pretty old, uh, <laughs> as well as a twenty five year old Talisker. Um, so those were pretty cool. They were really. It was really weird how different they were. Mm-hmm. Like the twenty five year old still had lots of that like smoke and peat Mm -hmm. and then five years later in the 30 it had all gone into the background and it was really like there's a lot of fruity notes and it was much less you know in your face pete it was really weird how that happened only in five years Mm -hmm. um but i guess there must be something where like it just gets a little bit older and it just all disappeared um they swore that they were not different whiskeys uh so (laughs) so that was i thought that was that was a pretty fun experience and then 
I, on like last weekend, I went down to Transmitter. So my brother-in-law was in town um, and Transmitter is a brewery uh, in the Navy Yard Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn. Hadn't been in a while and they were doing like a cool like holiday pop-up down there. So we walked down there and she had like their their S7 Saison, which is just really good. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was a, that was a lot of fun. That's me. Nice. (laughs) So uh, speaking of beer... Yeah, you know, I thought it'd be really fun today. Well, we all thought it'd be really fun today to talk to uh, Vine Pair writer at large, Dave Infante, who also loves natural wine, right, Dave? <laughs> Love natural wine. Soul fights, get him out of here. <laughs> <laughs> no, he just he has a lot of lot of memes that he posts about. Just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, just, I can't stop posting. It's a medical disorder. <laughs> violations. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm surgically incapable of not posting. It's really uh, good. I love following you on uh, on Instagram and um, Twitter. And yeah. Twitter. Welcome to the show, You're Dave. Welcome to the show, Dave. So uh, thank you. So uh, you know, also you know, worth mentioning. I mean, come on, two two James Beard Award winning author. Yes. You know, two time. Two time, right, gas, Dave? Gas me up! I'll take. I love it. Let's go. Let's go. Back to back. When I was when I was uh, a wee twenty five year old Talisker myself, uh, <laughs> I, I won. Uh, that's right. This was like I don't know. I guess it would have been like six years ago now. Yeah, I won um, a in twenty sixteen. Then I won again in twenty seventeen for Boom. both times wow. in the uh, in the beer, wine, and spirits uh, category. So, which doesn't you know, exist anymore. It. Doesn't exist. They, yeah, they uh, I think they it. were worried that you know I was sandbagging in the category. So <laughs> they just they must have gotten rid of it. <laughs> so uh, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I, I, you, we all consider you here uh, one of the best journalists in this space. Um, you do really amazing deep reporting, and so mm-hmm. we wanted to bring you on to talk about a piece you just published for us uh, recently on the supply chain, simply how it's affecting beer. But I think you know probably based on what you've learned, you can talk a lot about the entire industry. Um, mm-hmm. So do you want to give us a quick summary of, of sort of what's happening in the industry and then we can sort of have, take our discussion from there? For sure. I mean, the TLDR here is that the supply chain is certainly fucked in, um, <laughs> in ways that no one really fully understand. So it's important, you know, as a grain of salt here, like logistics experts that I talk to who have been in this business for 30 years are saying, you know, it's really difficult to even say how fucked it is because we don't really have any comps for what's going on now. So just keep in mind as a frame of reference, like people know that they can't get things. They know things are getting more expensive, but you know, the, uh, the impact of globalization of trade over the course of the past, you know, 30, 30, 40 years has been that these systems are are massive and opaque and even people with a really good you know sort of finger on the pulse of their little corner of the supply chain um have a very difficult time wrapping their heads around what's happening even a couple links up the chain Mm -hmm. so um you know just keep that in mind as we talk about these things like there are there are tons of caveats there are tons of contradictions like there are instances where shit's actually getting cheaper because uh a a bottleneck somewhere in mexico actually meant that you know there's a product in california that's now able to get access to trucks or whatever like so there's there's a bunch of um wrinkles to this but generally speaking things are fucked everything's getting more expensive uh you know sort of trending upwards um the way i the way i approach this is 
you know, like you said, I cover the beer industry a lot. I've been focusing on that for over a decade. And yeah, I find that beer is a really good prism to get into sort of broader cultural, political issues. And this one's an economic issue, right? Like no one really wants to read about like logistics. It's not interesting on its own, but (laughs) when you think about, yeah, like, you know, that's a tough sell for a mainstream audience. But when you put it in terms of, you know, how, how these beers are or are not getting brewed, um, it gets a little bit more tangible. Right. Like and so the goal was to just go around and talk to brewers from across the country, talk to economists, uh, talk to people who work at the wholesalers, who work at the logistics firms that are dealing with the port backups and dealing with the trucking uh, uh, bottlenecks and understand where the inputs are um, for brewers and mm-hmm. which ones are getting to market, which ones aren't. And, uh, and as best as possible, figure out why. Interesting. So, Dave, I mean, obviously, this is a, a complicated and complex issue, as you outlined, and, and there's no one simple answer to this. But a thing that I found interesting in reading the piece was that I think for some people, the conception or the notion that we had to this point was kind of like the issue was basically not production. It was getting shit from point A to point B to C to D to do whatever. Right. But like the things that are needed are out there in the world. It's just both, you know, shipping containers are stuck in places and, you know, all that stuff. Is that accurate? Or, or are we also facing in a lot of these cases, actual shortages of the raw materials or, or the goods that people want? Uh, Chief economist of the Brewers Association, Bart Watson, um, who's always pretty good in terms of thinking about, you know, how the craft beer industry in the United States is growing and developing from an economic sense. Obviously, that's his expertise. The way he framed it for me, which I thought was a really helpful framing when I spoke to to him for this story, um, is it kind of breaks out into when we talk about supply chain issues, it breaks out into three buckets that are all interrelated and have compounding effects on one another, but are somewhat distinct. The okay. first, the first is what you're, uh, what you're sort of asking about, which is the different. Or the first two are like the two sides of the coin that you're asking mm-hmm. about. One is disruptions, and one is shortages, right? Mm-hmm. So um, he was making the point that you know. In the case of aluminum, for example, there is plenty of aluminum being produced in the world, right? Mm-hmm. The, the shortage is not about getting the metal made in the, the smelting facilities or – I think you smelt aluminum. Do you smelt aluminum? I think you do, yeah. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we all just said right? that without looking at <laughs> it. Right? Like, yeah. yeah, for sure, you smelt yeah. it. Yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, smelt it. Very confident on the smelting. Yeah, very um, confident. <laughs> So, you know, the, the, the aluminum is out there. What, uh, you know, the reason that we're not getting cans uh, to market and brewers are having so much trouble getting those empty can brights um, to be able to fill is actually not because we're not producing enough aluminum. Uh, the global economy is not producing enough aluminum. It's because either it's stuck in a port and unable to move to where mm-hmm. it can be processed or um, it's the capacity of the facilities that turn raw aluminum into aluminum cans are, is already maxed out. Mm. And both of those things are actually happening in the case of the aluminum can marketplace uh, that U.S. brewers have access to mm. today, right? Like Europe is producing uh, uh, plenty of aluminum. Mexico is producing plenty of aluminum. U.S. facilities are producing aluminum. The problem is the major can corporations, Ball is the biggest, mm-hmm. Ball is the biggest aluminum can company in the world, but uh, uh, Crown Holdings, is another major can company and Ardoz is a third. Um, they they have no more capacity. Uh, okay. they, their facilities are completely maxed out. They're running extra shifts. They just can't move more aluminum through their their system to get it out the door. 
And is this just because they stopped making aluminum for a while, like during the pandemic or, and now there's a huge demand or like what's. Well, also think about the uptick in demand with all the RTDs that right. came out over the past. It was just they weren't prepared. Months. They didn't forecast like. Right. Yeah. So Joanna's, Joanna's right. Like it's, so this is another one of these like kind of compounding issues, right? So uh, we talked a little bit about disruptions and how that can kind of mask, uh, mm-hmm. that can kind of look like a shortage, but it isn't a shortage. Um, but there's also just the matter of spiking demand. I mean, Joanna spoke to it. There are new products coming online, market shifts that are pointing firmly in the direction of, um, well, away from plastic for sure, but Mm -hmm. mostly towards aluminum, a little bit towards glass. Glass has its own uh, ecological problems and it's heavier to ship. Mm -hmm. So aluminum is becoming increasingly attractive to uh, beverage corporations, both within the beverage and alcohol space and then just in the broader beverage landscape because they have corporate sustainability goals. They also want to cut down their margins on shipping. And furthermore, uh, the aluminum recycling system is really like when it's running well it's one of the best material recovery rates possible right aluminum is kind of the gold standard in terms of material uh, that can be recycled so there's a lot of reasons that producers even prior to the pandemic both booze and non-booze producers were turning to aluminum cans for more of their product mix right the pandemic came along disrupted production for whatever a couple months The, the the plants never shut down no no major aluminum plants like went fully idle but demand dips right so they react to that um to try to pull back a little bit and then demand actually spikes so if you can imagine kind of like a um like a tow rope going slack and and then all of a sudden you know the truck that's pulling the the trailer you know accelerates really fast the rope is going to be stretched really taut to the point where it's overstretched and could potentially snap right? right that's that's what happened at the beginning of the pandemic ever since they've been playing catch up but the pandemic made everything or made the the turn to cans uh, an exit, an existential matter for mm-hmm. producers because they had to get access to the off-premise market. Every single one of them did all at once, right? So right. the spike was just enormous. And as is the case with anything uh, in in capitalism, like economies of scale matter. The biggest buyers are going to have the the front of the line and the most access to cans um, or any other raw material. Which is why, as you start getting further down the chain. You know, from from the ABIs and the constellations and the Molson cores of the world, they're they're going to be fine. They have their own packaging companies. Right. They had trouble lining up materials, but they were ultimately able to overcome them. But those aren't the producers that we're talking about. We're talking right. about the ninety five percent of U.S. craft or U.S. breweries that make less than you know ten thousand barrels a year. Like these are tiny, tiny breweries, and therefore they're at the last. They're at the end of the line because they buy so little compared to the bigger guys. Right, right. and they. They have trouble. And then, Dave, you you mentioned in your piece that, you know, some of them maybe had the the foresight to stockpile cans, but at that point, it's really an issue of storage, right? You can't buy so many cans to have. Yeah. So one of the things that came up in my reporting that it's a little like nerdy and I I got at it in the piece without spelling it out, but it's this concept called just-in-time inventory management. Mm -hmm. And um, just-in-time is a popular philosophy surrounding um, inventory management and logistic efficiencies that has been sort of the reigning philosophy from what I understand uh, over the course of the past. Every major business will you have to take a a supply chain class and they mm-hmm. basically teach just in time. 
Sure. Yeah. And, and so, uh, my dumb ass didn't go to business school. So I thought this was normal. <laughs> oh, I, did you go to business school? I did. <laughs> I was, I was on the, I was on the Wikipedia page being like, oh yeah. Okay. Like, this sounds pretty important. <laughs> yeah. This is really um, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Someone should write a paper about this or something. <laughs> um, but so, so for, for people like me, for, for newcomers to the idea of logistics management, the concept is basically you don't buy it until right before you need it. And that way you keep very little inventory on hand. Mm-hmm. You keep your overhead low and you prioritize your cash flow and a low inventory spend over long-term stability. And that works fine if you're operating in predictable, you know, uh, uh, you're in a predictable ecosystem, uh, Kevin McGee, who's the president and CEO of Anderson Valley, uh, brewing company out in Northern California, popular bird. Kevin took over a few years ago with his family. I think he bought out the original owners. Um, and, and Kevin, you know, likened it to me, uh, to running your business logistics chain as though it's Amazon prime, right? If you, if you can always get, something from Amazon prime three hours after you order it, why would you, why would you order a bunch of it and put it in your apartment? Right. That doesn't make any sense. Like right. you don't need it until you you want it. So you, you wait until you want it and then you hit the, the button on Amazon prime and it shows up a couple hours later. That works in normal times. Um, and it works for, you know, personal consumption habits. Breweries obviously have to operate a little bit differently, but, um, and it's not quite that simple. I mean, no one's buying hops on Amazon, but the right. point is that, <laughs> or maybe they are, or maybe they are. Some brewers. Some, like, real what's fra- our, what's our, yeah, real fresh you're gonna get hops. Some, yeah. You're going to get some angry home brewers writing in and be like, uh, I actually do buy my pellets on Amazon. <laughs> um, but uh, the point is that, you know, brewers um, were benefiting from this system because it allows them to keep their overhead low. There, there shouldn't – I think the tendency – and I had to kind of disabuse myself of this as I was reporting it. There's a tendency to make kind of a moral judgment on this and like, oh, the, you were you were kind of like cutting corners. You were running fast and loose and you got caught with your hand in the cookie jar type of thing. I don't think that's the case in my reporting – shows no, you know, I didn't come across any instances of breweries willfully taking on additional risk in order to take cash out of their business Mm -hmm. prior to the pandemic. That's, that's not, I'm sure there are individual instances, but like by and large, that's not why people engage in just in time. They engage in it because it, it works. And and as long as the supply chain is running as normal, it's a better way to run your business because you can move more cash through the business without tying a bunch of it up in, for example, empty cans in a warehouse on the, on the back of your property. Right. 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 But uh, Joanna, to your point, like some brewers that were lucky enough to have warehouses, as soon as the pandemic hit and they started kind of being able to understand like, oh shit, like everyone's going to need cans. They placed bigger orders to warehouse them. Again, no moral judgment here. I don't view this as hoarding. They bought them and tied up a bunch of capital in empty cans. Like they took a risk and they're not doing it to like gouge someone on can prices later. They're doing it just because they don't want to run a big batch of beer. And then Holy shit, we only have three quarters of the, of the amount of empties that we need. Mm -hmm. So we have to dump 25% of this batch. Like that's why they're doing it is as a hedge, not as a speculation, a speculative gouge. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I'm wondering, Dave, you know, in your reporting, did you get any sense that some of these intense supply chain issues are going to push back against that trend towards cans? Like, at some point, if you're a if you're a craft brewer, especially of a smaller scale, you might 
prefer to can a lot of your beverages either because you like that model it gives you access to off-premise accounts it's more environmentally friendly but if the cost of cans is so high or they're just flat out inaccessible to you do you you know is there some pushback against that trend just from the the logistical headache that it is at this point or are you just seeing people saying like if we have to charge more we have to charge more Good question. There's going to be, you know, I think the the specter that kind of hangs over this conversation, and it's important to acknowledge it. Uh, former Beer Institute uh, chief economist Michael uh, Urich mentioned it to me in my interview. He, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically, like the sad reality is, we're going to see a lot of breweries close in 2022, and it's yep. not going to be because of pandemic lock-ins. It's going to be because they simply can't source the inputs, um, and at some point, that business becomes insolvent, no matter how strong your branding is no matter how much the community loves you you know how good your liquid is you just don't have a business if you don't have inputs and that's really scary and it sucks uh zach some of that will you know that trend will push up again brewers will get squeezed and some of them will fail as a result um i think many more of them will innovate you know craft brewers are kind of I'm loath to to celebrate the industry as a cheerleader, but one thing that I think is important to remember is like craft brewers, objectively speaking, are a fairly creative sector of small business like they're agile they have a yeah scrappy they have an you know interesting product mix um that can be relatively nimble when it needs to be so i think we'll see some innovation what's funny uh is that prior to the pandemic there were a couple things happening that made the entire industry basically force them to turn on a dime once the pandemic hit. And the two things were the energy was very much in favor of uh, on-premise sales, right? So everyone was moving towards a taproom model, Mm -hmm. um, maintain low overhead, maybe even do all of your sales on premise to avoid even plugging into the set, you know, to the middle tier and trying to get to off premise that, you know, sales that way. Um, and, and, you know, you capture more margin obviously, and you have more control of your product. Right. So that was one trend. The other uh, was a trend away from, um, uh, away from glass and towards cans um, and away from growlers and towards crowlers. Right. So mm-hmm. glass growlers have growlers fallen very crowlers. out of favor. <laughs> Yeah, like over the course of the past, you know, the back half of last decade, growlers went from kind of like a cool, like, oh, you live in like a cool neighborhood in Brooklyn, like, you know, about glass growlers and you go to the Whole Foods and yeah. like fill up, you know, <laughs> w- with whatever, you know, 64 ounces that you're interested in. That went from being like a cool kind of like uh, uh, totem of the community to being, uh, I would say, like fairly stigmatized by the brewers themselves mm-hmm. because they didn't like the fact that, you know, they would be pouring beer into uh, vessels that may not be clean properly. Um, they're, they're a pain in the ass to fill. Uh, so if it's a busy tap room, um, no one's stoked to fill a 64 ounce growler. So there were just kind of friction points around glass growlers that had people moving more towards crawlers and more towards cans generally. So the pandemic hits, obviously tap rooms shut down entirely. So on-premise is gone. Um, so that trend kind of gets blown out of the water and it's still, I would say in a, in a, um, suspended in amber, so to speak. Like mm-hmm. no one's really quite sure what's going to happen with tap rooms ongoing. I don't think that they'll have sort of the, the, the bellwether of, uh, uh, position that they did, um, in the craft beer ecosystem prior to the pandemic. Um, but you know, you're also seeing everyone be like, Holy shit. Like we, everyone goes to cans. Now you're seeing the downside of that is that everyone is going to start running out of cans. I was on a, uh, I did a Twitter spaces last night with a couple of fellow journalists uh, in the beer space. And we had a guy who was like, 
a brewer who was like, you know, I just really want to remind people to, you know, if you can bring your growlers because that's like better, you know, for the breweries. Not every brewery feels that way. Please bring your growlers back. Yeah, but that's crazy, right? I mean, you wouldn't have heard a brewer say that two years ago. Two years ago, it was like, oh, we hate growlers. Like, don't, you know, we don't want really want to do growlers anymore, right? But Right, and especially growlers that are from a brewery that's not ours. (laughs) Yeah, right, right, yeah. So, you know, I think uh, they... Burrs will adapt. I think it's going to be really gnarly. You know, Ball put out uh, price advisories um, right before Thanksgiving, and credit to uh, Brewbound's Jess Infante. We're not related, but she's also a beer journalist and also from <laughs> northern uh, Northern New Jersey, which is bizarre. Um, but Jess Infante uh, got a hold of. I always thought you were related. To be fair, <laughs> no, we're not related. No, it's weird. We look very similar. Uh, we went to like the private the private school that we went to. Our sister and brother schools. Uh, she went weird. to Boston College. My mom and brother went to Boston. In college, it's all very strange. How do you do a DNA test? Yeah, you probably should. Yeah, yeah, we'll do we'll do like a live twenty three and me. Let's you know? <laughs> just see what happens. Yeah, that'll be one hell of a, hell of a Twitter space. He's so yeah, good. that's right. Um, but Jess Infante secured. You know, she obtained a price sheet that Ball issued um, to some of its smaller customers uh, that have new guidelines that are new rules that are going to go into effect on January 2nd, 2022. Um, the number of cans that in a minimum order that a brewer has to place with ball is going up fivefold. Okay. Wow. So wow. Be, yeah. So before you had to order whatever, about uh, 200,000 cans, now you have to order a million cans and that's a million cans per skew. So if you want to make IPA and you want to make uh, a pale ale um, and you want the labels printed at the factory, which is much cheaper, uh, you have to order a million of each. That's, That's an insane, insane number of cans. Yeah, like you're talking most of the, I would say anyone outside the top, you know, maybe 10 craft brewers in this country are not going to realistically be able to confidently go through a million cans in a single skew in a year. Um, and, you know, like it's just not realistic for, so it's basically, uh, it is a fa- effectively kind of a get lost. We don't want your business anymore. We don't need it. Yeah. Um, because we don't need it. And the other thing is they're jacking up the price uh, on 12-ounce aluminum cans about 28%. Um, So not only do you have to order five times more just to get serviced by ball, you also have to pay them 28% more per can. I mean, this is... This when this hits in January, um, it you know three weeks from now, it is it is going to have a dramatic and I believe immediate effect on um, the level of panic and the level of sort of uh, chaos that you see in in what brewers are putting out. I think we're going to see you know I think we're going to start seeing a lot more calls for growlers. I think we're going to see a lot more calls for come to the tap room you know uh, and drink here um, because we we can't effectively move yeah. stuff through our our system. It, it's it's going to be very difficult. So, Dave, I know you you looked mostly into craft beer, but I'm curious if you if you spent any time also looking at all at sort of imported beers and thinking specifically like Belgian. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm asking about that is because you know when when anything like this happens, obviously there's a lot of stuff that's really annoying, but then you also have a, a playground for people to do potentially shady shit, mm-hmm. right? So I, I heard a. Um, you know, someone was, was saying to me a few nights ago that they were aware of a, a brand that has a very f- 
well-known spirit that people like to gift and they didn't have enough in the market. And so they were paying off, you know, a shipyard to get their container unloaded first. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so like, yeah. you know, and the, the brand wasn't the distributor was mm-hmm. right. So yeah. like the distributor, cause that, that's who matters for, right. The brand's like, well, it is what it is at this point. The distributor's like, no, this is what we're going to make all our big sales. Let's get in there and basically like pay, it's pay them it. off and, yeah, and yeah. yeah, get, get us to the front of the line. Have you heard of that at all? Like, is that happening? And especially with all these, you know, high end Belgian people also like to gift. I'm wondering, if that has been an issue if you knew about it yeah so i i unfortunately wasn't able to connect i had an importer that we were going to talk mm-hmm. and we just weren't able to connect before the piece uh needed to be filed but i'm actually probably going to do a follow-up with him because he had alluded in his emails to basically the not so much like the paying people off but basically like you know he had alluded to the fact that like, yeah, my shit comes over on boats. Like, where do you think it all is right now? Like, it's sitting yeah. off the coast of Norfolk or off the coast of, uh, of, um, you know, here in Charleston, South Carolina is a, a major, uh, Atlantic port. Um, I spoke with, for the story, I spoke with, um, head of strategy at a cart, like a kind of an Uber for, um, for cargo containers, uh, mm-hmm. called, um, Cargomatic. And um, they're one of these startups that basically looks to kind of, uh, make the a la carte, like booking of chassis to move cargo containers a little bit more effective for people who aren't doing like massive, you know, like Walmart, right. obviously they have their own fucking trucks and everything. But if you're moving, you know, whatever, a, a small quantity of containers that's bigger than just a single one, you might contract with a firm like Cargomatic to line up uh, transportation for your, for your containers. So this is a guy who's been prior to working at Cargomatic where he's been for eight years. He was previously working for the port of Long Beach uh, for about, for about a decade. So you're talking about a guy who has very good, uh, uh, sort of bird's eye view of what's going on at one of the largest ports. If not, I think that's actually the largest port um, in the U.S. Um, and his point was very simple. It's like, you know, he was like, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing here, but it basically like, this is is, is in many ways very complicated, but in some ways it's as, exactly as simple as you think it is. Mm-hmm. Like there are ships coming in and they can't get in until other ships come out. And because like right. we're not able to clear the containers out, everything's sitting. And his point that he really wanted to drive home to me is that like it doesn't matter what is in those containers it all comes through the same port. So, you know, whether it's fucking tap handles or it's new Toyotas or it's, uh, uh, game boys or whatever the case, whatever it is, it's all coming over on the same ships. And if you're, you know, a crate full of rare Belgian beer, for example, uh, is on the same boat as, you know, a bunch of fucking lawnmowers, uh, it doesn't matter. You're not getting it any faster or slower. Now, to your point, that anecdote, I would, I mean, I, I didn't come across anything like that, but like, yeah, man, like, is it hard for me to believe that someone's like flashing cash around the ports and trying to get like better, better treatment from the longshoremen? Yeah, I can definitely believe that. Yeah. Like, like, you know, like, like that's right. I can't believe you would insinuate that anything untoward has ever happened in America's ports. <laughs> <point. laughs> That's right. I mean, as a, as a Italian American, proud Italian American from New Jersey, uh, this is basically defamation of my own people. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, after the, after we get off the podcast, I'll tell you where Jimmy's Jimmy Hoffa's body is, but, um, you know, I think it's I think still the, on one of those fucking ships, isn't it? Wait, but I have yeah. a, I have a, st- maybe a stupid question. So these ships aren't being unloaded cause it's a labor thing, right? Like, it just, there aren't people to do it. 
Sort of, yeah. So there's certainly labor issues. Um, not so much that like there aren't there's not labor available uh, more that it's not um, it's not available either when it needs to be, or there's just a lot of unpredictability about when, you know, when the boats are coming in. So there's too many people one day and then not enough people the next day. Um, There's also, this is also being compounded by uh, a lack of trucks to move the actual physical containers out of the port property once they're off the ship. So what you'll see is, and the New York Times did a big piece about um, the port of Savannah. Yeah, it was good. uh, Yeah, it was excellent. And, you know, like one of the, again, it's like, it's very complex, but it's also kind of simple. Like they literally just can't move because there's too many fucking containers everywhere. And so the trucks can't get in and out. There's also a lack of truck drivers, again, not necessarily a shortage, but truck drivers aren't there. You know, the trucking industry is uh, infamously exploitative and predatory in its Mm -hmm. current form. um, And truckers are very poorly paid. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the the country actually has an excess of trained commercial drivers, uh, you know, people who hold CDLs um, to the amount of trucking jobs that are open, but those trained drivers are not taking those jobs because the the trucking firms haven't raised their wages to reflect the demand in the labor market. Um, So all of those things are compounding, Joanna, and like, and what it basically comes down to is like, all right, maybe we have enough longshoremen to get the crates off the off the boat, but they have nowhere to put them because we don't have enough truckers to take the the crates out of the port, and we don't have enough truckers because the trucking firms won't raise their wages, but they don't really have to right now because they're making as much money as they can, even with the you know amount of trucks that they have on the road because of so much demand elsewhere in the system. It's really it's it's pretty. Uh, it's a tough problem to overcome. And again, economies of scale apply. Like no one is worried about craft brewers getting screwed here because you're talking about major firms like, you know, Walmart and Target and those people, are, those, those firms are first in line. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you mentioned the, the person from Cargomatic, Weston Labar, and in the piece, he says, very simply, this doesn't write itself until people stop buying stuff. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. yikes. And when, he said that, when he said that to me, I like thought he was going to like laugh afterwards and he just like didn't at all. <laughs> I was like, I was, like, like oh. so like, I guess thanks for your time or. <laughs> well, yeah, I know it's, it's funny because you, you do, you, you've heard a bunch of people recently say like, yeah, man, we need a recession. And I'm like, no, we don't. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like people think that might be the only way that a lot of this gets solved. Like how, how are we going to solve the employment crisis and things like that? It's like, we need a recession. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, shit. So we really are going to have to have a correction. And uh, it probably is coming. I mean, but it's that I don't, that's a scary thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, no one's really, I don't think anyone besides maybe like central bank economists that think about this stuff very clinically, like, you know, average rank and file American drinkers and and small business craft brewers and people of that nature, no one is rooting for a recession, but Labar's point was similar. I mean, he basically told me the same thing. He's like, unless there's like a major downturn, like there's really nothing that's going to clear the slate. And, and get these boats out of the port. I mean, when I talked to him, um, this was about a month ago, but when I talked to him, there were 77 ships off the coast of the port of Long Beach. So if no more ships ever like showed up, like if you know tomorrow all of the ships coming from Southeast Asia just decided not to come to Long Beach, it would still have taken a month at the current rate to clear through just those 77 ships. Um, and, you know, there are, there are whatever, a dozen new ships showing up every day. If you fly or I'm sure you guys have seen the pictures on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. 
if you're on a, a commercial airline uh, and you're flying near Long Beach, you can see them on the horizon. There, you know, it's it's dozens and dozens of massive container ships just waiting at anchor to get into the port and they'll be there for weeks. Um, so, you know, the, it's, it's a very difficult situation because there's no easy solution and the ingredients that are coming, the, the inputs that are coming from there, the merchandise that's coming from there, the things that small brewers need aren't easily sourced mm-hmm. domestically. And that's the other point mm-hmm. that, you know, I think is important important to kind of keep a frame of reference on is like we think of craft beer as a very local product and it is like i I don't think that's a lie like that's i I buy that for the most part that tracks but even like you know uh, deeply local products uh are not insulated from the global supply chain i mean the, the supply chain is in every every minute aspect of our economy and and craft beer is not exempt. So, you know, we'll we'll continue to see it appear in strange ways. Uh, Some of them will be predictable, cardboard, aluminum, uh, you know, some of these like inputs that we've already heard a lot about barley because barley crop was down uh, really bad here in North America uh, this past year, it was down about 30%. Um, And then some ways would be just totally bizarre and unexpected and, uh, you know, uh, out of left field. Um, And, Mm -hmm. and, Brewers are just going to have to continue to roll with the punches, and that's really difficult because they've already been doing that for you know twenty months. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, we uh, we hope that we'll continue to see how this story evolves and maybe follow up on it on the site, um, and we'll have you back on the pod to discuss. Yeah, Dave. At a yeah. later date. No one. Uh, no one asked me what I was drinking. I, I was. Well, oh, Dave, what are you drinking? What, what are you drinking, drinking? Dave? <laughs> All right, so I went to the liquor store, and you know South Carolina <laughs> has some of the worst uh, uh, spirits taxes in the country. Yeah, the, it, you got really to move home, Dave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got to come back. <laughs> Get me out of here. Um, but uh, so I, I was picking up uh, Irish cream for we were doing a holiday thing, and mm-hmm. we were going to make like spiked hot chocolate or whatever, and we were going to have you know. So I'm going to get Bailey's Irish cream. So I look, they, the handle of Bailey's Irish cream is like $64, uh, which is a lot of money, right? (laughs) Handle? Yeah. uh, Handle days? Yeah. Like, just like objectively for a handle of Irish cream, yeah, that's a lot of money. Like, I don't, I don't know. No, I'm just, we're commenting on the fact you were buying a handle day. Oh, it was a party. A party. Oh, it was a party. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. I thought it was just you and the yeah, wife. For myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. By the way, Adam, I have to expense a bunch of lipitor. <laughs> my, my, my cholesterol numbers are just infinity. Um, no, yeah. But, so anyway, so I picked up instead uh, St. Brendan's Irish cream. I didn't know there was a broad variety of Irish creams on the market. No, Did you guys? Like, not that's, at all. I think of it as as Bailey's, you know, like that's the, whatever. But St. Brendan's, so I got to handle St. Brendan's. We, you know, we used it for the party. And, you know, the, the punchline is that, uh, Adam, you're kind of right. I overestimated on how much Irish cream people would drink. People like put a splash of it in their hot chocolate. It's not like, you know, it, it, we didn't move it very much. Yeah, so now, it. unfortunately, like I've been just kind of like finding ways to incorporate Irish cream into various beverages. <laughs> um, it's, it's remarkably versatile as a base. Uh, we so, not yeah, want not, Dave. It's yeah, very exactly. popular. Yeah, people do? people love it. Uh, people do. Yeah. St. Brendan's, uh, St. Brendan's Irish cream. Uh, <laughs> who knew? It's, it's, yeah. Who knew? Exactly. But <laughs> so good. Um, yeah. Well, Dave, thank yeah. you so thanks much for, for coming on. <laughs> thanks for sharing that. Now we might look for St. Brennan's. And yeah, we'll definitely have you on uh, again sometime soon. And then uh, Joanna and Zach, I'll talk to you guys on Friday. See you then. Sounds great. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.